were doing some cleaning up, and I don't even remember what it was. Somebody threw out something. I don't remember if I threw it out. I don't remember if somebody else threw it out. But it was something that had significance to Thelma, and she was not happy about it. <laughs> and she forgave us for it. <laughs> and she's still here. <laughs> and I'm saying that to say, uh, you know, I came here 29 years old. And um, uh, more ignorance than I knew I had. Made more mistakes than I could shake a stick at. And, you know, you learn and you grow along the way. And I just want to say thanks to a lot of people that extended a lot of grace to me over the years. Um, I think of people that have been here for a very, very long time. Um, there's not a large number of you that have been here for a very long time from those early years on, but Thelma and the Carols and the Dodies. Um, probably the, well, the Dodies were the first family to start coming here after I arrived. Uh, in fact, we were over there painting when I got a phone call from the Dodies. They had, um, let's see, uh, Michael, Rebecca, uh, Megan, Jason. So at least four of your kids were with you. And then Dennis and Barb, so it was six. I'm standing over there with a missionary and, and a couple of other pastors in the area were painting the, the house next door. And I said, a family of six just committed to attending here. And I mean, that's, we, we had like, there was about a dozen people that attended here at the time. And one of them looks at me and goes, write a book. That's 33% growth in, in, in one month. Write a book on how to grow a church by 33%. And, and you don't have to give them the numbers, just give them the percentages. You'll be, you'll be famous. Uh, it was slow from there. And uh, people like the Carols have, uh, uh, and the Dodies and other, have, have just extended grace and, and been faithful and present. And, uh, and I'm just thankful. Um, I'm, I'm blessed when I look back over the years and, and look at myself over the years and events over the years. I'm thankful that I'm here today. I'm really thankful that I'm here today. So. Thank you. A um, uh, couple of announcements that we need to make this morning before we move to scripture today. Uh, this coming Saturday is our men's breakfast. So men, please, uh, please remember this coming Saturday, men's breakfast. There is a uh, sign-up link. If you, uh, if you get the email that was sent out this, uh, this past week, please let us know that you're going to be here so we know how many to prepare for. Um, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Lois, are you still up for hosting the crafting? Are you sure? I'm, I'm, I am not. I just want to change plans if we need to. Okay. Don't feel, under any, any, don't feel under any pressure. Let us know if you need to change. Okay? For now, ladies, you're planning a crafting evening on Thursday, February 17th at Lois's home. Um, 
And the ladies' breakfast, the first ladies' breakfast, is going to be on Saturday, February 19th at Sherry's Barn. So, um, uh, ladies, please keep that on your, uh, on your uh, radar screen as well. A uh, couple of other announcements that I need to make quickly. That is, um, on, on Wednesday, February 16th, is our annual business meeting. So everyone's welcome to attend. We do have a couple of items we're going to vote on. There will be more information about that next week. But uh, for now, let me just say that, um, that uh, membership will be able to vote. Anyone can come and speak and share in that, that evening. But we'll have, a, uh, we'll have our annual business meeting on February the 16th uh, here at the church at 7 o'clock. Uh, in addition, there are a few more giving records on the back counter. There's a few of you that haven't picked up your giving records from last year. For tax purposes, please make sure that you stop by the back counter and pick them up. And on the back counter, there are last year's financial statements. So if you really care about finances and you want to know um, the ins and the outs of our fellowship's finances, what came in, what went out, where it went, there's a, there's a financial report back there. You can pick one up on your way out and take a look at it. That will be on the table for discussion in our business meeting. So if you want to look at it, you have questions, you can let one of the elders know, or you can ask questions on, on uh, that Wednesday evening of our, of our um, business meeting. So uh, please take a, a, um, a financial report if you're interested in one, if you would like one, it's back there, okay? Uh, I think that's all for right now, uh, announcement-wise. So um, just the way things have gone this morning, we're, uh, I'm, I'm aware of the time, but we're going we're gonna to turn to Scripture this morning and uh, want to close, as we usually do, in a, in a brief time of prayer at the end of our service. Um, I'm looking over my shoulder. Okay, so what I'm seeing back there is that that little box is telling me what's on there. Is that correct? Thank you. Um, here it was, our first Sunday with a new screen there, and I did not lead worship, and I looked at this screen while we were singing. So, uh, uh, so now I'm going to get to look at it for the first time. So if you could bring the PowerPoint up. Uh, it, it's up. Why am I not seeing it? Oh, if I click. Ah. I see. Thank you. All right. All right. I understand now. Okay. So um, it has been, uh, some of you were commenting on this last week, it's been a really strange start to this new year. It has felt odd. Um, the first Sunday of January, I finished uh, our series on heaven that ended last year that was kind of our, our Christmas time focus bled into the first of this year. We, we looked at the, the last in that series of messages on heaven. The second Sunday was a weather cancellation, so we had no services. The third Sunday, uh, my family and I were away visiting my daughter in North Carolina, so we had a guest speaker. Um, and then last Sunday, we had communion for the first time this year, which was way out of order. And, um, and also, we, we focused on uh, painting a picture 
yes, it was a reminder. It's, it's, it's a subject we've looked at before. Uh, it was a reminder, but it was intended to paint a picture uh, to remind us of who it is that we're supposed to be, who we should be, who we aspire to be, and what we're aiming to be as a congregation of Christ followers. We're endeavoring to, to remind ourselves, build a mindset in ourselves, understand that we have been called to be ambassadors for Christ, that we are uh, specifically ambassadors of reconciliation, Am I hearing an echo again? Okay, we'll ignore it again, but um, everything was redone yesterday, so we'll keep working on it. We are, we are ambassadors of reconciliation. This mindset, this, this understanding of who it is that God has called us to be is one that needs to dominate our existence as a congregation. And, and it means that we will continue to ask ourselves as the Lord leads us in years to come, we are going to continue to ask ourselves in everything we do, what does this mean in terms of being ambassadors of reconciliation in this world? How does this fit? What does it mean for us to be these kinds of believers? What does it mean that we are representatives of Christ, His representatives, to both believers and unbelievers? To both believers and unbelievers, we are representatives of Christ in a broken world, in a world that is hurting, in a world that is needy. We are the ambassadors of Christ. Um, listen, there are times when believers need to come alongside one another because uh, a brother or a sister is struggling with a sin that they need to overcome. Or they're in a time of need, and they, and they need companionship. They need a prayer partner. They need someone to minister to them. There's any number of reasons why, why we are called upon by the Lord Jesus Christ to be His representatives in one another's lives, in the lives of other believers. Of course, we are representatives of Christ to the unbelieving world. Of course, we carry the gospel to the unbelieving world, and we are Christ's representatives in the specific words of the text we looked at last week. We are to be beseeching people, begging people, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. But listen, in, in the work of, of uh, I mean, just put any number of things, a believer that's, that's seeking to overcome a sin, a Christian marriage that is in crisis and struggling. Uh, uh, someone passes away. Um, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's other struggles that a family, financial struggles. In, in everything that we do, every need that we come face to face with, we become representatives of Christ in that situation. We are the representatives of Christ in that situation. We are seeking to help people, as we talked about last week, to be reconciled within themselves, right? To come to terms with who we are, to be at peace with ourselves. Listen to this. No believer can be completely at peace living in sin. When there's a, when there's a sin battle going on in our lives, we need to be reconciled to God and reconciled to ourselves. Because... Because we will not be well. We will not be at peace in those circumstances. 
At times, we need to be reconciled to one another. We need to be reconciled to God. And so this is the call that we have as, as believers. We are called to be ambassadors, to be representatives of Christ. Last week's message was also an introduction to what is, what is finally here, the fifth Sunday of this month, we get around to this, to, uh, uh, to an introduction to what our theme is going to be for this year. As elders, we talked about this, we prayed about it. The theme that we have settled on for this year is that we are called to be the church, that we are going to be reminding ourselves throughout this year that we are supposed to be the church. As, as Americans, we do a lot of talking about going to church. Or in some settings, if the service was particularly good, they will say, oh, brother, we had church today. The church is us. The church is not a building. The church is not a schedule. It's not a service. You can use the word that way. It's okay. okay? Don't get all paranoid about it. It's okay to say we're going to church. But, but what we want to be reminding ourselves of this year is that we are the church and we're supposed to be the church. Everything in our lives, we should be asking ourselves, can I do this and be the church? When I do this, how am I being the church? If I can't do it and be the church, then I probably shouldn't be doing it. Everything I do should be revolving around the idea that I am the church and I am serving as Christ's representative. And if I can't represent him in this, then it probably has no place in my life. How can we be ambassadors for Christ? In other words, we are going to be the church. We're going to be the church. Throughout the year, we have all sorts of opportunities. We have all sorts of opportunities that arise. We're working on a missions trip. We are, uh, we are, uh, there are times when we're dealing with, with uh, mental and emotional health issues. The call of how do you walk with someone what does it mean to be the church in each other's lives when somebody is going through something that is very deep and very challenging for them? How do we walk with one another at these times? Uh, we got a VBS coming up that is part of our outreach to the community. Um, uh, that's part of us being the church in our community. We have, um, we have this this question of, of, of what does it mean to be the church in terms of fellowship and in terms of building relationships with one another. Um, how, do we, how do we navigate this? Uh, a couple of years ago, um, uh, Brother Matt and Karna led a, a kind of marriage tune-up, a marriage class. Part of what the church is called to do uh, as the church, as ministers of reconciliation, is to help married couples live life well together. To live life well together, right? This is part of what we do as people that are called to be the church. And there's just a tremendous number of, of opportunities for this. And so we are asking ourselves, we, we will be asking ourselves, we should be asking ourselves, how does what we do 
translate into being the church and being ambassadors for Christ. By the way, one of the things that, that, um, that, we, uh, that we talk about periodically in, in the elder team and that will be part of our conversations this year, no, we, listen, we, we just don't have, uh, we don't have a goal to wear the congregation out by being the church with the biggest number of programs. That's not necessarily what it means to be the church. So part of what we ask ourselves is, is the thing we're considering doing something that God really wants us to do? Because there's lots of good things we could do that we might not be able to do. So we have to ask ourselves, God, what is it that you want us as a congregation to be about? What do you want us to do? What does it mean for us to be ministers of reconciliation? We've got a certain number of resources, people-wise, financial-wise. We've got, we've got resources, and we've got constraints. Lord, what have you called us to do? Our desire is to be the church. And please hear this. Our desire is to see every member of the body of Christ encouraged and built up to be the church. Please hear this. Because the church is not something, in one sense it can be seen as an organization, but please hear this, the church is us. It's us, right? It's us. Anything we are or do is going to depend on us. One of the things that happens, um, somebody comes up with an idea, hey, maybe we should do this. Uh, one of the questions that I at times ask people is, that's a great idea. Would you be willing to not only be involved, would you be willing to lead it? Because if this is a burden on your heart, maybe God's calling you to it. Why? Because someone's going to have to lead it. There's going to have to be energy that comes from somewhere. So when I think of that, I'm just going to take one more second on this. How many of you remember how much energy was generated over last year's VBS because Chris Casian. <laughs> Amen. Amen? One person goes gung-ho about something. Amen? And all of a sudden, everybody starts catching fire for what could be done. A next-door neighbor says, you guys are doing a VBS? Here's $500. And all of a sudden, without asking, people in the congregation begin contributing funds. And all of a sudden, we've got something going because, because somebody gets excited. And it, and it would, I mean, the only thing I can say at the end of that is, as far as I can tell, it seemed good to Chris and to the Holy Ghost, right? <laughs> it seemed good, I, that's a paraphrase, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us, right? And, and, and something happens. Why? Because we have an ambition to be the church, to be the church, to be that, that, those representatives of Christ that he's called us to be in this world. All right, all of that, the long introduction to this. I want us to look uh, for a moment at a scripture in 2 Timothy, and I'll, I'll, um, I'm going to continue the introduction and um, don't get too nervous because the 
the actual point of the message will be fairly short. Let me give you a little background this morning on the pastoral epistles. We talk about the pastoral epistles, we're talking about, why did I look over my shoulder? I did it. <laughs> Those of you that are counting. Uh, we're talking about First and Second Timothy and Titus, three books. Sometimes people throw in Philemon, but it's really First and Second Timothy and Titus. These are the three books that make up the pastoral epistles. They are named pastoral epistles um, because there were two men, Timothy, who was assigned to uh, the church in Ephesus, and Titus, who was assigned to the church in Crete, that were needing direction for their pastoral ministry. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them, and these books deal primarily with subjects, the subjects of Christian living, of, of what sound Christian doctrine that should be taught in the churches uh, is, and what Christian leadership is supposed to look like. And so it's in these two books that we get the primary passages on elders should be this and deacons should be this. Why? Because he's writing to two men that, are, that have been given pastoral responsibility to lead these churches, and they are being told to, to establish the church in this way. In essence, what Paul is doing in these letters is he's pastoring the pastors. He, is, he, is, he has a personal role in Timothy's life and in Titus's life, and he is mentoring them, he is pastoring them as men that have pastoral responsibilities themselves. And he's helping them to develop in ways that will allow them to, to conduct their pastoral ministry well. These letters, it is believed, were written between Paul's fourth missionary journey and his second imprisonment during that time frame. Not everyone agrees. Most, most historians believe that Paul's first three missionary journeys um, were followed by a time of imprisonment, uh, the time that we read about in the book of Acts, and that Paul was exonerated, that he was set free after that, that imprisonment, that he embarked on a fourth missionary journey, and then he was arrested again. It's not unanimous, but that's the belief. It's believed then that Paul was writing these letters, um, uh, 1 Timothy and Titus, during his travels in his fourth missionary journey. And that 2 Timothy is the last book he writes, this is known, the last book he writes, and this book he writes while he's imprisoned. And, and in fact, he's writing it, it from prison knowing he's about to die, knowing that his life is, is coming to an end. Now, for whatever this is worth, this is, this is the story. Um, this is the story that accompanies this. Uh, I asked my wife the other day, I would not have known the date, not surprising. Um, but on, on July 18th, 64 AD, there was an event that took place. How many of you know what it was? Does the date ring a bell? I, I mean, I, I just want to pat you on the back and tell you I'm impressed if you know the date, okay? But many of you will know the, the event. 
On, Janu uh, on uh, July 18th, 64 AD, Rome caught fire. Rome caught fire. It burned for six straight days, and they finally put the fire out. Shortly after putting the fire out, it rekindled and burned for another three days. By the time, by the time that fire was done, by the time that fire was done, 70% of Rome has been destroyed. And Nero is in trouble because the Roman citizens believe that Nero started the fire because he didn't like the way Rome was constructed and he wants to rebuild the city in a way that suits him and in a way that will show what a grand and glorious emperor he is. And so there's this legend that, that Nero uh, went up onto a hill outside of Rome and played the fiddle while Rome burned, right? Um, historians believe it's a complete fabrication. But, but the story was real. That, that Nero had, had deliberately had someone set fire to Rome. Now, most historians also believe that Nero did not start the fire, that it was purely accidental. Whether or not he had someone start it, or it started on accident, is, is almost irrelevant. The point is that, that there was an accusation that the citizens of Rome believed Nero had started it, and Nero was feeling rather insecure because he's being accused of starting a fire in his own capital. And so Nero starts looking around and asking himself, who can I blame for the fire? And who does he find? He finds the Christians. So Nero says, there's a new religion that has taken hold in our city. And these people, these people don't believe what we believe and they're insurrectionists. And he accuses the Christians of starting the fire. And it becomes the justification in order to prove in the minds of all that he has really found the culprits, he, he embarks on a persecution of Christians. He begins putting Christians to death. Most historians believe that Paul was imprisoned during this time and that Paul knew he was about to die when he quickly writes 2 Timothy and, and sends out his last letter just before he's beheaded under Nero's persecution. Paul gets, gets martyred as a ringleader of the cult that has started this fire in our great city. That's the story that Nero tells. So you think about the history, you think about the setting, Second Timothy becomes, well, I mean, people's last words kind of matter, right? You know, not everybody gets a chance to pick their last words. And very few of us ever get the chance to be present and listen to someone's last words. If you ever have the privilege of being present for someone's last words, please remember that you're on holy ground. 
you're on holy ground. Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. Um, the Psalms tell us that the death of a saint is precious in the eyes of God. There's a sense in which God's eyes are specifically drawn to the deathbeds of believers. When you stand with someone at that moment, you are standing at a time and a place when the eyes of God are paying special attention. You're, you're, in, you're in, in holy territory at that moment. And every once in a while, someone gets to hear something special. Second Timothy is Paul's last words to a man that he calls his son in the faith. A man that he had an up-close and personal relationship with. He had assigned Timothy to Ephesus. He feels responsible for Timothy's ongoing ministry. He knows Timothy well enough to know what some of Timothy's struggles in ministry are. And so, in the, in the days before Paul dies, of course we know inspired by the Holy Spirit, but, but as a, from a purely human perspective, Paul's thoughts turn to Timothy. And he says, what can I say to Timothy, my son in the faith? What can I say to him? What does he need to hear? I, I think of it in this terms, if I had been Timothy, I would have just been blown away. I don't know what the exact timing was. Timothy might have received Paul's letter after Paul had died. Timothy probably received Paul's letter and, and either knew he had already died, probably not, but probably heard very shortly after that Paul had been beheaded for his faith. And Timothy would have been standing there holding a letter in his hand, thinking to himself, my spiritual father was thinking of me in the very last days and took the time to write a letter to me just before he passed. I think that letter would have been significant. I think it would have meant something to Timothy, right? Now, I want to I read two verses. They're extremely well-known. They're very famous verses. But I want to read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. King James says fear. But of power and love and discipline, or sound mind, as the King James reads. I want to spend four weeks in this text. The first thing we're going to look at is what the church is not supposed to be. And then we're going to look at the three things that Paul said we are supposed to be. That is, one thing the Spirit of God has not given to us, and then three things the Spirit of God has given to us. We're going to look at them each, one at a time. Paul, in this passage, reminds Timothy, he reminds, he reminds Timothy that Timothy's uh, pastoral ministry was a gifting 
that God had gifted the church with Timothy as a leader and that, and that God had gifted Timothy for the work of pastoral ministry that he had been called to. And Paul reminds Timothy of this. Listen to this. Because I want to say everybody, but I'll say most everybody to leave it in doubt, uh, to, to, to leave some doors open. Because most people get into situations and feel either unqualified enough, incapable enough, uncertain enough, face enough difficulty that they start to question whether or not they heard from God. Some of us have that experience early in marriage. Right? Dear God, what have I gotten myself into? Dear God, what did she get herself into? Dear God, what are we doing? Who thought this was a good idea? Right? I mean, listen, I, I'm, here's, where I'm, here's this, one of the struggles that I have at this point. I look back on myself. Now I'm looking at my children, right? And I'm thinking, who, who exactly was thinking that I, at 21 years old, was qualified to become a husband? I mean, what was anybody thinking? I, Mom? She's, she's, she's probably watching right now on live stream. Mom? If you're watching this, what were you thinking? I, I know in part what she was thinking, because she took me aside, and she said to me, you better marry that girl. I think she was thinking, she'll be really good for him. That's what I think she was thinking. He needs her. That's what I think she was thinking, right? Um, but we get into situations and we go, God, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. I don't know if I can do this. God, I didn't know it was going to mean this and this and this. And, and God, I don't think I'm enough for this, right? We, we get ourselves into those circumstances. And all of us need someone that will be willing to come alongside of us and encourage us and tell us, you're there by God's calling. You're there by God's calling. He wants you to be there. He puts you there. Stay there. It's important for you to be there. Right? And that's what Paul does for Timothy. Paul says to Timothy, you're called. Don't forget the calling. Stir up the gift that is in you. Stir up that gift. That, that he's reminding him, secondly, that when he, when, he, when he refers to the gift that he's in you, he's reminding Timothy that God's calling always means God enabling. You've been called to this, therefore you've been gifted for this. That is, God doesn't tell you to do something and then leave you without the resources to get it done. Timothy, you were put in this position. Now, I think many of us know what's coming, right? God has not given us a spirit of timidity, and we know that Timothy seems to have been a, a, a kind of fearful, timid, uh, kind of maybe a shy personality, one that, that wasn't very forceful in his leadership or very strong in his leadership. I can just hear Timothy uh, thinking to himself, I am the least likely candidate to do this. Um, if they had had strengths finders back in the day, it probably wouldn't have said, Timothy, pastoral ministry. 
Probably not, right? I don't know. But, but Paul has to remind him that, that, listen, God has gifted you for this. Why? Because if God calls you for this, God will enable you for it. God will enable you for it. We, uh, we see in this passage one thing that is not of God, three things that are of God. And listen, sometimes knowing who we are supposed to be means uh, taking a few moments to know what we're not supposed to be. Now, um, this is one of those things that, that I have wrestled with to come to, to, to come to terms with in my own life. Um, one of my biggest frustrations in life is that it is too short to do the things I want to do. Too short. My biggest problem is not the problem of not having enough interests. My biggest problem is the problem of having too many interests that I can't do to my satisfaction. That I can't do to my satisfaction. Whether we like it or not, we have to come face to face at some point that if we are going to be something in life, it means that there's something else we're not going to be able to be. And we may just have to let it go. We may just have to let it go. We can't be that if we are going to be this. The first time this dawned on me was, was shortly before I was married, or shortly after I was married. I had an uncle who sat down with me and he said to me this. He said, I've only got time for three things in my life. I've got time to be a Christian. I've got time to be a businessman. And I've got time to be a husband and a father. I don't have time for anything else. You know what he was saying? He was saying, it's not that I don't have other interests. It's that I don't have time for other interests. I can only do these three things well. You know, everything else that we get to enjoy in life is, is a brief, spicy respite from the three things we can do well. Thank God he lets us do some other things that we get to enjoy every once in a while. But we have to understand that when we look at our lives, our lives have been constructed in such a way that we have to ask ourselves, what are the priorities, God, that you have given to me that I can do well if I give myself to them? And what does it mean that I'll have to let go of if I'm going to do these things well? Listen, some things we have to let go of if we're going to do other things well. Some of the things we have to let go of are sinful. Some of them are distractions that have no place in our lives. Some of them are not sin at all. Some of them are good things that we just have to choose between. We can't do it all. In the case of the one thing that Paul tells Timothy he's going to have to let go of, it's something that's not good. Something that's not good. 
I want to I want to focus on the on what Paul told Timothy he couldn't be. One thing that God hadn't given him. What he would have to let go of in order to really be the kind of Christian leader that God had called him to be. I want to focus on that one this morning. God has not given us a spirit of timidity. He has not given us a spirit of timidity. Now, Listen, first of all, to the fact that Paul is saying this rather gently to Timothy. He could have pointed the finger straight at him and said, you know, you're a wimp. And God's not given you a spirit of timidity, a spirit of fear. But Paul says us. He says us. Here's what I think. I think Paul was probably very much sitting in that cell, knowing that he's facing death, preaching to Timothy and reminding himself. I know what's coming. And a spirit of fear is not what God has given to me. I'm going to write it to Timothy, but I'm not going to write it as a superior. I'm going to write it as a man who is facing his own danger and is preaching to himself as much as he's preaching to anybody else. Please hear this. The us invites all of us to apply this scripture to ourselves. My brothers and sisters, God has not given us a spirit of fear. That is not the spirit that he gave to the church. Okay, let me say it again. When the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to the church to be with us to dwell with us, to fill us, to be our helpers. And the spirit that he gave to you was not a spirit of fear. It was not a spirit of fear. It was not. So let's just do it in two parts. The first thing is, let's look at what it means that it's a spirit. That it's a spirit. I kind of wish some, some charismatic circles... They, they think that there are spirits that have a name, right? This, um, I wish there was a spirit called fear because that would mean it could only be at one place at one time and everybody else would be exempt from it, right? If there was a single spirit called fear and one called lust and one called depression and one called, then we'd all, well, I feel bad for whoever the spirit of fear is visiting today, but I'm thankful it's not me, right? But that's not the way it is. That's not the way it is. What does it mean when Paul says a spirit, a spirit? Let me, let me illustrate or paint a picture this morning. How many, of you, um, how many of you have a certain mental image as soon as someone says the word antichrist? Do you? Most of us think of a person, right, an individual at the end of time uh, and we probably have certain phrases that have been plucked out of Scripture. Um, well, he's going to speak boastful words, and right, we, he'll, he'll be he'll be Satan inspired. And we have these we have these kinds of cat, these things that we kind of say, well, we know who the Antichrist is, and 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 where he fits into history, and that's the way I think of him, right? But the fact of the matter is that in, in uh, 2 John 2.18, we are told, John writes and says, 
there are already many antichrists. Many antichrists. Right? And then in 1 John 4, 3, he refers to the fact that there's a spirit of antichrist. What's he saying to us when he talks like this? What he's saying is this. He's saying, even in John's day, he's saying, even, in this, even now, there are lots of antichrists. That is, there are lots of people that display the same characteristics that the antichrist will display at the end of time. They're in cahoots. They got the same interests. They've got the same methodology. They've got the same goals, right? And, and, and there's lots of them. There's not just one. There's lots of them. But what we can say is that they all share the same spirit. They all share the same spirit. Okay, another quick analogy. How many of you consider yourself to be introverts? Raise your hand high if you consider yourself an introvert. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, how many of you would agree that you're probably not all equally introverted? Okay. How many of you also would agree that you all share a characteristic in common? Right? It would be something like, it costs me something to be around people. Right? It takes a lot of energy out of me for me to be around people, right? That's a characteristic that we share. There's a certain spirit, a spirit that belongs to Antichrist that is shared by many other people that is a spirit of Antichrist. What the Apostle Paul says is that there is a spirit of fear. It's a characteristic. It's a mark. It's an, it's an experience. It's something that lots of people fight with at one time or another in their lives. And it's, it's, it's something that is present in, in, in the hearts of people that share a common link between them. They're afraid. They're afraid. Now listen, let me just pause here for one second and say this. I, I, don't think I, have, I, I don't think I will have to, to do a whole lot of convincing if I say to you that it sure looks like fear has resurfaced as a spirit in our day. That there's lots of people that are afraid. Right? There's lots of people that are afraid. That fear is a mark of our day. It's a spirit that I believe is strong in our world. The King James, it's a real fast description of the idea of a spirit. The King James, um, the King James reads a spirit of fear. I chose that word. New American Standard, timidity. Let me, let me close this morning focusing on fear for just one second as a thing that the church is not supposed to be. In, in Luke 21, verse 26, we're told that one of the marks of the last, the last days, not just the last days, but the very last of the last days, 
the time just prior to, be, to, to Christ's return, that it will be a time when men's hearts fail them for fear. Time when men's hearts fail them for fear. That is, when fear becomes overwhelming, when it becomes paralyzing, when it becomes a temptation to not engage in and do the things that we're called to do because we're afraid. Men's hearts will fail them for fear. Well, if we're not in those days, I think we're at the very least seeing the, the forerunners that show us what it's going to look like. I mean, it just seems like it just seems like there's a steady drumbeat of scary messages. Just in the last 48 hours, um, I clicked on news headlines, and the news is dominated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And what a devastating thing that's going to be. Uh, you can't click on the news without not one story, but a whole succession of coronavirus stories. Now, I'm going to I'm going to pause here, and I and I want to make sure that I'm saying that I say this as clearly as I can. I what I am not saying is that we have been called to throw all caution to the wind. And anybody who urges someone to take a precaution is doing something sinful. I'm not saying that. This is not a political statement. This isn't even a, a, a COVID statement. It is this. It is whatever we do or don't do, however we approach these issues, we should not be driven by fear. It should not be fear that dominates the decisions we make, the choices we make. It should not be because I am living under a haze of fear that dominates my life. There's a saying, I don't remember where I ran across it. I think it was a Spurgeon thing. But, but one of those old saints used to talk about the fact that he was indestructible until God was finished with him. I'm indestructible until God is finished with me. Now listen, there's all kinds of theology that you got to work. Well, what if you're driving the wrong way on Route 15? God might be finished with you sooner than you think. Right? I mean, presumption plays into it. But his idea is something like this. If I'm doing what God's called me to do, and I'm being the man that God's called me to be, and I'm living where God's called me to live, I, as a believer, do not view my life as something that is dominated by fate. Nor is it determined by circumstance. Amen. 
I live under the watchful eye of a heavenly Father who cares for me. And if He sees a sparrow when it falls, nothing is going to happen to me. And, And the moment I die, I will hear the divine word from heaven say, oops, it's not going to happen. Right? I missed it. That's not the case. God sees us. There is a very legitimate way that the phrase, every single one of us is indestructible until God is finished with us, that that phrase is true. I I don't mean to, to belabor the point. If you choose to eat Twinkies and and drink Dr. Pepper three meals a day for the rest of your life, God might be finished with you sooner than you think. Right? We're not saying there's no human responsibility in this. But you know what? When we live within reason and we live responsibly, you know, you go over to someone's house and they put a Dr. Pepper in front of you, the fellowship probably matters more than the drink does. Just thinking out loud, that might be the case. How about you take a couple sips and trust God to keep you alive? <laughs> you will survive. Amen? Amen? I mean, do you know what I mean? Right? That sometimes we get to the place where we feel like things are life and death that really aren't life and death. They really aren't. I'm not saying don't be responsible. I am saying this. I am saying do not allow yourself under any circumstances to come under and be, have your life dominated and directed by a spirit of fear. The church was not called to that. The church was not called to that. Just for my sake so I can go. You know, if you don't ever want to buy Dr. Pepper, don't. That's fine. I'm just saying if you go visit somebody else, that's all. Okay? It's probably good if you don't buy Dr. Pepper. <laughs> but we don't, have to, listen, we don't have to live bound by it. My life isn't... I did buy Dr. Pepper last night. <laughs> Bless God, I'm going to have a drink later on. You know? uh, we're not called to fear, my brothers and sisters. Responsibility is one thing. Fear is another thing. We're not called to a spirit of fear. There are multiple words that are translated fear in the New Testament. Multiple words translated fear. Most of them have a positive, have a positive usage. For example, one usage for the word fear is reverence. There's an appropriate way. You have a certain reverence for God. Or children, you have a certain fear, a certain reverence for your dad. That can be a good thing, right? That's an appropriate thing. But this word that is used in, in, in 2 Timothy 1, 7, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament, and it has no positive meaning to it. It has no positive application. In other words, it's, it, it's a word that means, that means timidity, in the face of something that you should not pull back from. In other words, it's cowardice. It's fear that changes your behavior 
in the face of something that you should walk through. It has no good use in Scripture. No good use. This word has no positive uses. It means cowardice or timidity or to shrink back from. What was Timothy in danger of? What was he in danger of shrinking back from? Well, Paul's aware of the fact there's a persecution starting. And so he's speaking to Timothy, and maybe one thing in his mind is, I hope Timothy can encourage the church to stand strong and be faithful in the face of persecution. We're supposed to be the witnesses for Christ even in the face of, of persecution. Remember the apostles? Do not speak in this name anymore. Their response? Is it better to obey God or men? We, we, we must obey God. They knew that imprisonment and death was a possibility. But there was not going to be a persecution that was going to keep them from doing what God had called them to do. You know why? Because they had been in the upper room. They had been filled with a spirit of power. And it was not a spirit of fear. It was not a spirit of fear. They were going to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. He may have been fearful of the responsibility of leadership. What if I make a wrong decision? What if people don't like it? Right? There's a legitimate role that leaders play that can be a little bit intimidating sometimes. Maybe Paul was aware of the fact that Timothy was in danger of not being the leader he was supposed to be because of fear that was in his heart. There was, there was the, the, um, the discomfort or the, uh, the discomfort of confrontation or conflict. In these letters to Timothy, there were situations that Paul has to tell Timothy, you've got to deal with this. You're going to have to correct this. Rebuke with all, with all love. Rebuke false doctrine, Timothy. Well, that's not a great way to win friends and influence people all the time, right? But you have to do it. You have to correct false doctrine sometimes. Might have been something that Timothy was just not, it was not within his character to want to do that, to have the boldness to do that. These are things that Timothy was in danger of coming under a spirit of fear of and being prevented from doing that he was supposed to do. It was a spirit of fear. So let me ask you, what is the temptation to fear in our day? What is your temptation to fear? What is the thing that you're afraid of? Yes, I'm asking you to think of something. What is the thing that you tend to be afraid of? How many of you seeing the world become more and more evil feel a certain fear that rises in your heart? Maybe something like, if it's like this now, what's it going to be like in five years from now or ten years from now? Right? Certain fear. Certain fear. Um, if I can just throw this out there, please hear this. Let me say it this way. Uh, moms, dads, live in such a way and talk in, in your homes in such a way that your children 
will not think it's an irresponsible risk for them to have children someday. Don't build such a spirit of fear in them that the, hell, that, that the world is going to hell in such a handbasket so fast that, hey, it would be irresponsible to bring children. You ever heard somebody talk like this? Irresponsible to bring children into such a world as this. My brothers and sisters, we have been called to be the church in every generation. One of the ways we produce disciples is doing it in our homes. Your children will be, should Jesus not return, will have their turn to live their lives under the grace of God in the power of the Holy Spirit for their day, and God will be faithful to them and sufficient for them in their day. Amen. So talk in faith. Speak in faith. Don't build a spirit of fear into your children. Amen? Don't do it. Don't do it. We're fear of the, fearful of the influences that our children will come under. Fearful of the influences. We can be fearful over our health. Now, listen, I'm not going to meddle any more than is necessary, and I need to close quickly, but let me just say this. Responsibility is one thing. Fear is another. We need to be honest with ourselves. Amen. We need to be honest with ourselves. Because it's very easy to, to hide fear under the claim of prevention and responsibility. Very easy to convince ourselves. We need to be honest. Am I living in fear? Am I living in fear? Right? We can get scared about these things and live in fear of these things. Some of us have fear over finances. Do you believe that God can provide? Well, how? I don't know. Work hard. We'll start there. But my brothers and sisters, I'm not saying this would be normal, and I'm not saying that every believer has had this experience, but I do know that there was a God who was able to bring food to his man in the mouth of a bird. I don't know what it means. I just know it means this. If I am being obedient and faithful to God, I believe that God knows what my needs are, and I should live in a spirit of trust that he's able to provide. Amen? That God is able to provide. We fear people's opinions of us. The fear of man is one of the greatest snares that we ever face. The fear of what people think of us is a powerful fear that grips our hearts. I mean, in many respects, it just comes down to the fear of the unknown. I don't know what they'll think of me. I don't know where the money will come from. I don't know what effect this will have on my health. I don't know. I don't know. My brothers and sisters, in many respects, fear is a lack of faith, a lack of trust in the face of what we don't know. And what we forget is that there is one who does know. He does know. And we live under his watchful care. We live under his care. Listen, for many things, there are appropriate levels of concern. But do not deceive yourself between appropriate concern and fear. 
This is just one way of saying it. I'm not saying it's the end-all and be-all or the perfect definition. But fear is that lack of trust that leaves us paralyzed by insecurity, uncertainty, instability. Listen to this, because this last part is important. And will either lead us into paralyzed passivity or frantic activity. I got to do something, got to do something, got to do something to protect myself. Fear makes some people back into a corner and they can't move because they're passive. And fear drives some people to try to control everything they can control in order to keep themselves safe. And I would implore you today to not let a spirit of fear drive you in either direction. Be obedient and be responsible, but live in faith with a profound trust that God, who, who, that, that God who is in heaven has the ability to sustain you, to keep you, to preserve you. And that even if you were facing Nero's persecution, the, the message you'd have to preach to yourself is, God has not given us a spirit of fear. He has not given us a spirit of fear. What can men do to me? That's the question the psalmist asks. I will not fear. What can men do to me? Right? I'm in God's hands. I believe that if we are going to be the church in our day, that we're actually going to have to live in such a way that people want to ask us a reason for the hope that is within us. And they're not going to do it if we're all cringing in a corner somewhere. They don't see hope in the face of fearful people. Let us not be a fearful people. Amen? Let us not be a fearful people. All right, would, would you bow your heads and would you take just a moment as we close to be real honest with yourself? What is the thing that you are most inclined to fear? Maybe you're not a fearful person. Maybe you can honestly say there's nothing that I live really in unhealthy fear of. But at least endeavor to do this. What is the thing that I could be most easily tempted to be afraid of? Here's my suspicion. Most of us mere, mere mortals have something that does get our attention sufficiently that we can be afraid of it. The little list I gave is a little list. There's plenty of other things that we can be afraid of. I'm going to ask you to take a moment today, cry out to God, and say, God, today I receive the reminder that you have not called me to live under a spirit of fear. And I am going to see this as a matter of spiritual conflict in my life. God, I refuse to live under a fear that you did not assign to me. I refuse. I will not mask it by calling it other names.
I will not do it. I refuse to live under a spirit of fear. It's not what you've called me to. We are going to be called to be the church, to be agents of reconciliation in this world, and we should not be, we should not be neutered. We should not be backed down by fear. So cry out to God today. If fear is a struggle for you, cry out to him and ask him for his help. Lord, come meet me in this. Speak to me in this. Teach me in this. Touch my heart in this. Deliver me from a spirit of fear. I don't want to live unto it, under it any longer. Lord, uh, we do not want to be paralyzed by a spirit of fear. Nor do we want to be distracted by an obsessive drive to protect ourselves and control things because we're being driven by fear. Lord, we want to have clear heads to be able to be your representatives in this world today. To see clearly what you've called us to and to be about our Lord's business until he returns. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace of honesty. Honesty with ourselves. Lord, if there is fear in our hearts, I pray that you would give us the grace to allow that admission to bubble to the surface of our hearts, to let it sit there as uncomfortable as that makes us. And then to have that moment where we kneel before you and repent and cry out to you and ask for your help. Lord, how do you want me to see this thing in front of me in the light of what it means to be a Christ follower who trusts you? Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from a spirit of fear. And Lord, I, I, I don't believe that it's for nothing that the number of reminders we have in Scripture to not fear is so large. I don't think that Timothy is an anomaly, that he's an exception. And so, Lord, I pray that any of us that would be tempted to be of that kind of timid disposition would would seek the, the strength that your spirit supplies and be freed from a spirit of fear. Lord, I pray that there would be a brother or sister that would step into the fresh air of faith and trust, find the, the joy and the rest that comes from being freed from a spirit of fear. Give them the grace to fight the spiritual battle that must be fought in order to overcome.
Lord, give us that grace that we might serve you faithfully and be your church. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 How many of you are thankful that it's not a spirit of fear he gave us? Amen. How many would agree that it is really, I mean, there's just a freedom that is present when we're not slaves to fear? Amen. May God give his people that freedom. May God give to his people that freedom. Uh, Lord be with you this morning. Take some time to encourage one another and to uh, um, uh, fellowship together. May the Lord's grace be with you throughout this week. Thanks for being here this morning.